So may we start in honor of 2022. What's your most anticipated release of the upcoming year? I'm Katie Rich, and it's The Lost City, even though it should be called The Lost City of D, as was its original title. Uh, It's Channing Tatum's comeback as the Romancing the Stone remake. We didn't know we wanted, but clearly did. I didn't realize. I just want to point out because this has been a uh, a real pet peeve of mine for the last like six months or so since they took the single greatest movie title of the past five years and just lopped off the D. Unfortunately, The Lost City uh, of Z is not a movie enough people uh, know exists to be related to that title. The Lost City of Z, the 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 relationship to that movie is just I know, but this is too important to let go. The Lost City of of Z connection is just a little extra icing on the cake, but the Lost City of D in and of itself in a vacuum has enough power. But uh, I just want to point out, as we saw in the trailer, that the Lost City of D is still the name of the novel that Sandra Bullock writes and is still preserved for posterity in the film. The annotated fighting in the war room. I am Matt Patches. I guess my answer should be Top Gun Maverick, but I don't really want to know what a shoe tastes like, so I'm going to go with Lightyear out of morbid <laughs> curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's me, David the Seven, and bring me more Spider-Man this October with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. Don't think that title's long enough. Uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making me share Dave's excitement in a forthcoming Spider-Man movie less than three weeks after the release of Spider-Man <laughs> No Way Home. Um, I'm David Ehrlich, and I, you know what? I, I'm sure all, you know, there are a lot of great auteurs out there with a lot of interesting movies coming this year. Um, Ari Aster's Disappointment Boulevard nope, keeps nope. jumping out of me is one, one I want to see. But one. Katie, Katie, yeah, this I, is for you. I knew you were going to do it. I this knew it. Right and pick it. After watching for the second or third thousandth time at midnight last night, a little film called Titanic, it hits, you know, it's been like three weeks since I've seen it, and it's like, uh, you know, it hit me for the first time. Um, I, I've got to go, of course, with James Cameron's Avatar 2. Never bet against Hell James yeah. Cameron, unless you're betting on release dates. But the film itself, it's going to deliver, baby. This is what happens when David doesn't leave his apartment for 10 days to let you record <laughs> <laughs> I've also watched Titanic in the last week. Great film. I also have what I showed, I showed Charlie part of it. Oh, Charlie wow. keeps saying he could handle the rest of it, and he, he can't. But we watched the part where uh, she rescues him with the axe. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 376. It is Pandemic 94. We sure are going to hit Pandemic 100 at an auspicious time. Uh, it's the week of Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. Happy New Year. Uh, it's That's the day that in 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was published. There's probably a metaphor in there for our current reality, but I can't come up with it. Not a lot of right good now. movies released in January's past. Uh, so back and, to books. And now Morbius will not be one of them. Uh, oh, no, Dr. Morbius. <laughs> Dr. Morbius and Mr. Jared Leto. <laughs> I mean, is Morbius a Jekyll and Hyde thing? That I might just know. I, I saw that trailer. He's transforming really into remember. a vampire occasionally, so I guess he could. Hey. It could. It could be. I don't think they've established right. whether he's in control. Well, now we have to wait longer to find out uh, because Morbius has been pushed back. Uh, I'm very happy to be reunited with you all, David. Did anyone leave us reviews? They sure did. We have two reviews here, uh, and let's see what they have to say. First, 
we have a review that says same problem with Wisecrack. I'm not sure if Wisecrack, which is capitalized, is a reference to another podcast that this person has a problem or, with. Or is that a one of our reviewer. nicknames that we don't know about? I think I, I, my other guess was that it was like a, a previous reviewer whose feelings about the show resonate with this Don Bertoya. Dom Bertoya. Dom as in Dominic Toretto. Mm-hmm. Um, D-O-N. No offense to anyone who likes this. That's a good start. Uh, but I just <laughs> Top of the like year. It. Let's get this party started. <laughs> Another year of Mighty the I mean, War Room. I, I appreciate that the most important thing that Don Bertoya wants to point out is that he does not mean offense to, uh, you know, anyone who happened to put our podcast on the top 10 podcast <laughs> list of 2020. Uh, 2021. I think we probably have to retire that bit now that it's 2022. But anyway, this show, it's me, is mainly fixed towards hipster millennial types mm. driving to work early in the morning. Yes, we've all been doing a lot of driving. Yeah, how old is this person? Um, the humor isn't anything special and it's pretty predictable. Transition True. music is all right, I guess. Ooh, Analysis of media and culture tries to be funny and clever, but just feels lazy and lacking. I agree with that sometimes. Keep hearing it for any kind of nerd. Oh, keep hearing it's for any kind of nerd. But the only types of nerd I can think of who'd like this is a starting up nerd or a nerd who only reads specific books and nothing else. Yes, we do cater to our book nerds. Uh, I get the hosts are trying to be fun about this, but their take and views are very basic. Reviews don't really add much to the movies and are pretty much pretty basic in observations. Oh, okay. Overall, the show for me suffers from the same problem I have with Wisecrack. Here we go. Mm. It oh. tries to critically analyze media that doesn't need critical analysis. Oh. And a lot of times oh. feels oh, far here we go. Okay. okay, so... Really, this started off as a review about our podcast, but it's actually a review about cinema. And wait, wait, wait. Like, but ironically, is a review about uh, us and that he's being critical are about Are we like, worthy of, of criticism? I, well, apparently. Dom, yeah. Dom has a movie or two to go. Right. Uh, if you like typical podcasts and starting up on nerd content, go for this. Start However, up. if you are a committed nerd of mm. any kind <laughs> and looking for funny content on movies and nerd slash pop culture, I'd recommend listening to something like The Weekly Planet instead. I wonder if Dom Bertoya is a host of the podcast. <laughs> I think in that he would have only left us one star, but he was very generous with the two. Yeah. We, we appreciate you for listening, Dom Bertoya. Where are the lies? Uh, I don't you know. may not be around to hear this, but uh, if you do, sorry. Uh, very helpful <laughs> review. Um, we also have a five-star review from Very Pushy. Jeff's Fighting in the War Room review is the headline. I may be in the minority, but I've greatly appreciated when there are no reviews. The conversations on Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes has actually <laughs> saved me from getting into the game. Recently, I was in need for a new game addiction. I was about to download Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes when I heard your conversation on the problems with the big update earlier this year. I'm a fan of grinding, but paywalls turned me off. I decided to download old remastered Final Fantasy games on my phone instead. Mm, that's Very a better pushy. choice. That was probably a very wise choice. Uh, you have more self-control than I do. You've saved me weeks of my life. Possibly years, I have to say. And way too much money than I would like to add up. Thank you. Oh, and the show is great, yada yada. Uh, this review was helpful, Jeff, but it did prevent us from talking about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Mm-hmm. So I think you may have to call it a wash based on what you we retire that bit in 2022? Like, have we moved can, on from this game? I can talk to you about any of the uh, Apple TV games I'm Katie, playing with my child now. So I mean, you're going to have to find a boring one because the last time you tried to do this, for any listeners who may not remember, you, the topic you came up for was too interesting. No, no, no. Remember and... when I started talking about Sneaky Sasquatch? Uh, I think I played Sneaky Sasquatch. I know. It was fun. <laughs> I mean, I can talk 
and right now we're on mini motorways where you just like create roads to link uh, houses to stores and then it gets more and more complicated as it goes. Mm. Not a long story I'm, there. I'm, I might uh, come up with something. That's that's more capitalist than Sneaky Sasquatch. So I'm not sure <laughs> I can get, to, get on that. Very, well, it gets more capitalist as it goes, I gotta say. Maybe any week we don't have new reviews, we can identify a different filmmaker as a pedophile. Wow. <laughs> what? Ooh, that's yeah. to go. Left get sued out of existence. <laughs> Seems just, like a good time setting to... the table. Just setting the table for segment number one here. What? Uh, seems a good time to pivot that we also got an emailed review of Ooh. somebody who wanted us to notice their review from Malaysia from six years ago. Oh wow! I hope it has a lot of references to, <laughs> to Five six stars. Ago. This review is from Failed Imitator, and it is called David Forever. Oh, wow. I love the podcast and the different flavor everyone brings to the table. Usually, David is someone I respect but never really agree with. But in the recent Furious 7 review, he spoke very highly <laughs> of Tokyo Drift, which is my favorite movie from the series, something I've always gotten flack for. So I really appreciated that. Thank you, David. Uh, I don't know if Failed Imitator still appreciates me or my takes, but I do recognize that. Well, they did send this over the years. review along, though. Yeah, and yeah. it's six years this later. A new so email, look at, look at old that. review. Oh, it's so a new must email. Be, oh, yeah. must be endorsing it. Oh, well, Congrats. thank you. Thank you very much, Feld Imitator. I think uh, I, you would probably agree with me that Tokyo Drift's still the best. In the I hope you've lightened up on Furious 7. Furious 7's a banger. Eh. Come on, uh, anyway, James Wan! If you would like us to read your review on the show, please go on iTunes and Fighting in the War Room and leave us one. We'll read them on air, good, bad, or anywhere in between. Whether they were sent yesterday or six years ago, they're all good for the gander. Thank you. Save us from talking about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes or uh, whatever other sick, twisted topics we might have. When can I talk about Angry Birds? I'm getting really into Angry Birds again after seeing the that, Angry Birds in a Geico I'm commercial. Too, <laughs> I'm too depressed by every single part of that anecdote to endorse having to talk about it further. So Guys, does anyone want to start an Angry Birds clan? Did you know you can start an Angry Birds clan uh, now? I got oh, kicked God. out of my Marvel be... Strike Force clan on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I wasn't Someone's g- not I, playing enough. <laughs> I was too busy potty training my child, or trying to, and uh, was booted for not doing enough raids. Anyway, uh, on to the show. We want to talk about Licorice Pizza, a movie that came out uh, several weeks ago at this point. But in the spirit of the holidays, we all had other stuff going on and other stuff to talk about and wanted to take our time on this one because it's the new Paul Thomas Anderson. It also Thomas didn't Anderson. really come out that much, right? Like it's been playing in five theaters this whole time. I think something. it is now more widely. I think it's playing it, near me now. So it's more widely It opened available. on Christmas at oh, okay. somewhere around a thousand theaters, which was scaled back heavily from their initial plan of really going wide. But yes, in uh, in stark contrast to most of the uh smaller films that have opened over this holiday season it did not go immediately to a semi-wide release it played just in new york and la for like three or four weeks um and did phenomenal grosses on those four screens yeah and um, it is uh one of the least available screener movies that i know of like i saw it on a link (laughs) at home but like do not have a copy to go back to and watch again um which is not relevant to most people in the world, but I have not had the chance to revisit it since I saw it like a month ago. Um, but, you know, it was the new Paul Thomas Anderson. It's set in the Valley in the 70s. It stars uh, Cooper Hoffman, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Alana Haim. And you might have heard that there's an age gap between the two of them. He is a teenager. Oh, she might is, do. Uh, 
in the movie he's 15 she's 25 i cannot remember their real ages they're somewhere around there um and they he basically wants to date her real bad and uh she keeps hanging out with him and uh on some level wonders if she should date him but then they also get into a whole bunch of other stuff including selling water baths and opening a pinball palace and working for a weird local politician and running into bradley cooper as john peters would i miss anything i'm sure i missed something they go to a lot of beautiful old restaurants in the valley that may or may not exist anymore and i found this movie incredibly charming i finished it and immediately wanted to start it all over again which most of the movies out this season have been pretty big bummers and i have not felt that about um as i said i saw it a month ago so i want to uh, throw this bummers like else. dramatically or bummers like they suck uh i guess both i mean like the lost oh, daughter i think is a great movie but you get out of that movie and you're just like oh, okay gotta take a breath and licorice pizza you just kind of want to like wander around inside um I lose patience mm. with movies like that a lot, but Licorice Pizza had me um, for every single moment of it, and I loved it. It does sort of feel like a hang movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a part of Los Angeles that I did not live in, but I feel like uh, they it's uh, something that can be uh, conceptualized by people who didn't live in there because it's such like a fleshed-out world. Uh, and it definitely feels like a coming-of-age movie in the way that... Uh, both of these people make the fun type of childish mistakes. I kept waiting for this movie to do something uh, that would like turn me off of it. But as you noticed, or as you said, Katie, it's actually kind of pleasant uh, all the way through, which isn't to say there isn't strife, but there, or that there aren't uh, stakes, but it's right. not, um, you know, the tragedy does not befall anyone yet. At least it might later. Yeah. When there's a, you have a crazy character like Bradley Cooper who's showing up and it's like a amazingly fun, tense sequence. I'm not worried that he's like going to suddenly like stab somebody <laughs> where it feels like it's, it's not once upon a time in Hollywood. Although exactly. You get the feeling that guy might, like he that. might go on to stab someone later that night. It just won't be. <laughs> right. 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 It, yeah. it feels kind of once upon a time on a Hollywood adjacent, except uh, where that movie pivots pivoted to focus on like uh the violence of the period also being like manifest in like this alternate history sort of way this one is you're hanging out and you're watching these people these uh two people go through a major turning point in their life uh and sort of how they define themselves i guess would be the best way to talk about it because in terms of how like the world defines them that changes throughout the movie so i feel like that's not necessarily what we're talking about we're just hanging out with two kids who probably like each other but uh have one of those relationships where they have to keep trying to prove to the other one that they're the mature one i think <laughs> yeah uh, i mean uh, to the point of stakes like yeah it's a it's a hangout movie and it's definitely cobbled together it's funny when i when the trailer for this movie came out i was really struck uh by something that i had been thinking about pta for a while which is like he has figured out how to just put everything he wants to see in a movie in a movie and i wish more movies and more directors did this where it's like i feel like he fantasizes about seeing bradley cooper screaming as john peters running down the street or seeing a waterbed like testing out a waterbed in a sales floor or something like just weird moments that he's picked up in life and they just seem all sprinkled in here um and and but when anybody else does it it's nightmarish like it's so hard because it feels super bad or unfocused or I mean, yeah, plenty. There are movies that have done it. Well, I would but... argue that super bad is in its construction, basically the opposite of licorice pizza in terms really? of how, no, well, I mean, super bad takes place over the course of a single night. Licorice pizza is, is the opposite sort of energy. Super bad is hyper concentrated. I'm not, but I'm not talking about 
the narrative flow of talking about putting what you want to see in a movie on screen. I mean, I, Peter Jackson does this is, is another completely different example, mm. but here's King someone Kong who's takes like place over the course of a single night. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One crazy night on skull Island. Um, no, I'm, I mean, I just spent a year thinking about the Lord of the Rings movies and I'm just like every kind of impulse you could imagine is, is threaded through the Tolkien narrative in that. And that is the most blockbustery version of this but i think pta does this with a finer thread and and a more personal a phantom uh, thread. a phantom mm. thread i guess my point here is even though it does feel hangouty i see a lot of connection between what pta was doing in like the master and doing in phantom thread and and having these kind of like big emotional moments these pivotal moments for characters and having um and and wanting to see them challenged by all sorts of different situations I, I feel like the relationship here is pretty high stakes because it, it you know what's funny the discourse about this movie where people were claiming like it's pedophilic or like it's it's what is this relationship you can't even get into this movie because the relationship is is so horrible or so gross um the whole movie's about the relationship the whole movie is about whether this is friendship or if it's something more like she can't escape his gravitational force like they're really bonding there's something going on here and it does they I mean, I don't want to, should I spoil what I, I don't have to spoil well, the Well, no, ending, but, but I mean, like, I just, just to, bef yeah. before we let the discourse drown out the rest of the conversation, I mean, I think that is something I don't want that it, to. it really, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that this movie really has in common with so many of Paul Thomas Anderson films, certainly Punch Drunk Love and everything after, Punch Drunk Love being maybe the closest sibling uh, of this movie among his filmography, is that it centers on this one relationship of these two seemingly incompatible um, polar opposite mm. characters who sort of fall into each other's orbits and like uh, I wish I, I wish I knew anything about science so that I could rely on scientific metaphors around like bonds and covalence and oh, covalent bond, so on yeah. uh, when they fit is yeah I just said the same thing but I broke it up into two different words put them in the opposite <laughs> order um, but the uh, it, it, there is sort of a chemical uh, repulsion compel like there's push and pull between these characters it's Similar but different to the same that you see between Freddie Quell and Lancaster Dodd and the Master, yeah. or um, or the characters in There Will Be Blood, or I mean, there is that that you know, unlike people, or certainly in Phantom Thread, um, although this is less romantic in nature, um, despite you know the affection and certainly the younger characters' crush on Alana, um, but it is so much a movie about people being unstuck in time, and, and it is a movie unstuck in time, even though it's so specifically located at this one particular point in time in uh, 1973 but it's so it, it, these characters it, it's ironic to me that so much fuss has been made about the ages um not only because as katie pointed out at the top of this episode her age is in question mark she's 25 in quotation marks and that doesn't necessarily mean she's 18 or whatever would make it comfortable for people who uh, are having such a oh, you, you, know, you think she's lying about her age but, in the movie Yes, I think that it's squidgy. I think that it's... I, I'm not necessarily saying there's, like, hard evidence. It's text or anything that she's lying about her age. I'm just saying it fits with the, the slipperiness of her character, these people who are uncertain of who they are. I mean, he is 15 going on 40. He's a, an <laughs> entrepreneur. Um, he works. Like, <laughs> he works at a, you know, yeah. He does work at a travel agency. What's his mom's job that he works at? A publicist. They're a, publicist. A, they're a publicity firm. That's how they get in, she, the, in the mix with the Mikado and John yeah, Lincoln. Yep. Oh, boy. And she is, you know... 25 going on 16 and you know feeling that sense of being yeah. in a holding pattern in her own life and and being a child and adults uh age or or um you know, the expectations or what life is ready to offer them and it is sort of about that 
strange liminal space between childhood and adulthood and, and the unexpected connections and overlaps and blurring blurred lines that can happen in that space. And so the movie, and it makes no bones about that. I mean, it's very, very clear about this from the start is about that, that limbo. Um, and it, it is not, yeah, right. It's not something that was like glossed over by Paul Thomas Anderson or something that, you know, he was trying to, um, so, something, uh, violent or, or, um, or sinister that he is trying to warp into something sunny. Uh, it's very much the text of the movie. Yeah, I I guess I needed it to have. I wanted it to have uh, a little bit more substance at the end of it because my memory of it. First of all, I have to say I I also saw it in a theater screening because I did not get a screener and the heater was broken and they told us beforehand, but it was still very cold winter. The pizza was in cold. Colorado. The pizza was cold. Uh, so maybe not the best physical experience, but I think it, just like overall in the movie, you have stuff like the Bradley Cooper, uh, sequence or, uh, when they're having like their little, uh, fight at the beginning of the opening, uh, of the arcade or the really opening sequence with the pictures. Uh, I have a whole bunch of these sequences in my mind where the performances really gel and I really get the movie. And then there's some other stuff hanging on to it. Uh, like the Sean Penn restaurants motorcycle. I sequence. knew you were just about to bring that up, and the politics uh being brought in sort of uh towards the end of it, which it's not that I disliked. I just said at the end it wasn't like there's something like Phantom Thread where there was a plot element to you know discover in order to uh, reveal the connection of these characters, or uh the Master where I think even though the plot kind of peters out and Joaquin Phoenix's character does or does not do some stuff at the end, um, the place that the relationship is left between the central characters really felt complete. Here, I almost feel like the final line of the film fits a version of the film, but I was very unclear about what movie I just watched. I mean, I think if, if there's a... Sorry, let me finish your thought. Good. I think no, if no, no, there no, I, is a like plot, it is her meeting a bunch of grown men one after another mm -hmm. and all of these little disconnected sequences and having all of them be revealed to be terrible in one way or another. It's not nearly as simplistic as like, here are all of the bad men in the world. But like these, I think really captivating scenes, including the one with Sean Penn and Tom Waits, which like did not think that I would be really into, but I was. Um, and then it all gets crystallized near the end when she is, um, you know, uh, is working for this politician played by Benny Safdie, which Safdie is it? Benny, right? Benny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then are we are we worried about this? Like maybe one of the few plot developments you can spoil, but should, the scales are lifted from her eyes about him in a really specific way, um, courtesy of another character. And I think that really crystallizes like what the movie is about and why it feels so powerful for her to make the choice at the end that mm. she does. Yeah, I would be I mean, I, I would be really interested in seeing the movie again, seeing that particular sequence again, because even though it's so out of left field and, and doesn't fit with the tone of the movie, I found something very tense about uh, the whole thing about the guy sitting across the street and looking at his office. And the first time through the movie, I didn't know what sort of, you know, I have uh, images of Harvey Milk playing in my head uh -huh. and, and I'm like, what sort of violence to prepare for? And I found myself like really, really tense after this breezy, easygoing uh, sort of high of a movie. I mean, the Bradley Cooper sequence is like the single greatest dopamine hit I got from a movie, certainly last year and maybe in several years before that. And uh, um, the most since uh, the shallow performance in The Star Is Born, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? <laughs> and of course, Limitless before that. Uh, and um, and then the yeah, the whole thing with uh, 
with Betty Safdie's character is, I, I just found unbearably tense. And I wonder how differently, I, there was one of the, those instances where I feel like the tension, while deliberate, may have been too pronounced for me to engage with it in the way that I think in hindsight, I can see it best serves the plot and this idea of masking who they are and um, the, the threat of like, you know, the sort of self-mitigation. And um, that was all able to come through. And I love, I love this movie. I mean, this is not necessarily an insult to the movie. I was just so, I was so uh, coiled and, and ready to flinch throughout that entire sequence that it stopped me from engaging with it on any other level in the moment, which um Wait, so how did you feel you about the, the sequence where she's uh, backing the truck down the hill, which is, I think, the actually most tense scene in the movie? Really? I mean, it's just so funny. That was hilarious. It's yeah, hilarious, it's, but it's scary. It's silent. Like, all you hear the whole time is this truck making these terrifying noises. But Bradley Cooper is terrorizing the valley like the Cloverfield monster. <laughs> I mean, and, like, it's really just funny. the idea that at any minute he's going to show up and be like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's so funny to me. Is, and then he does. Oh, so my God. Good it's great. In this movie. I mean, yeah, yeah I they're, they're the, he's the, just outrageously good. The, the balance between you're a child and nothing can hurt you, and but the real world was full with real threats. I don't think this movie ever hit for me. Mm. I could see it there. I just didn't. I didn't mm. feel it. You know, like that I feel like to what I was saying about the the threat of the of the sequence at the end. I mean, like right. there is well, that sense like I said, of I haven't, these stakes I've, are for real. I but I've seen it but once and I did start off with saying like there were times during this movie that I was like waiting for it to explode into violence because it felt like that's where it was going and I'm wondering if that's what stopped me from connecting to it the first time is because I was like am I gonna have to watch one of these really nice kids go through something oh. very horrible and then be told <laughs> like this is how the world is like suck it up I think by the time I saw up. it I knew I had read enough people talking about it the vibe is a hangout movie that my expectations were different and maybe that's that's useful as a, as a way to kind of be prepared for this because I do think every Paul Thomas Anderson movie has grown for me on a second viewing um, mm. partly because of that because you understand the kind of where he's taking you and I imagine like Rich Pizza would be the same I mean the movie is also yeah. very funny uh, I don't really funny understand. oh absolutely I, think, like, I mean the, I think all of his movies are hilarious but I think this is his funny like it's, it's his most at least the first time through the most immediately yes. funny uh, there's a scene I mean a lot of ham is really funny in this movie um, and the editing and the and the lighting and like it's definitely the, the, the best shot comedy I've seen in a long time but maybe the best edited too because there's this one scene she has this whole dynamic with her family, played by the other Haim sisters and the Haim parents, is my understanding. I love, yeah. I love that that's their real parents. I love um, it. And they and they have this dinner where people are screaming, and then PTA cuts to uh, Danielle Haim like smoking a cigarette, and Alana Haim is just there yapping, and she's like, "Fuck you!" And I like it lasts <laughs> for a split second. I was talking to my wife. I'm just like, most movies would have like a scene play out, just like the next scene would have a whole thing and set up the gag, and instead. Paul Tosanser just kind of like cuts to the funny part. And I really mm -hmm. appreciate that about this movie. And I think it works because each shot is really composed. Like in another movie, it might be this kind of flat sitcom lighting. So they have to have a whole scene to get to the punchline. And here we could punctuate with like a beautiful shot and a beautiful joke. It's really cool. Yeah. I mean, there, they, there's something that's as natural as, as, you know, drinking water to uh, the characters, but there is such an elegance, uh, even as light as that elegance can be to the way that he shoots these scenes and even that first sequence, which is really this, this phenomenal meat cute and PTA low key specializes in incredible meat cutes and these long talky scenes that have the electricity of 
um, you know, a, like a David Mamet play or something, um, and uh, or the, certainly being there in, in person. But um, that, yeah, the opening 10 minutes of this movie are really just them walking around school uh, a high school on yearbook photo day. And they are, for me, they were just like leaping off the screen. Um, and seeing it in 70 millimeter and really feeling the, mm. uh, the, the celluloid of it all and uh, how much that's able to set the scene and take you back to a certain point in time uh, it certainly goes a long way and made it a, a more immediately visceral experience than you might imagine from a hangout comedy. Um, and, you know, Patches calling this a comedy is accurate. But it's also, like, I think, first and foremost, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and then, <laughs> then, then a comedy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit, it's more of a sensual experience than you might expect. It is, but it still has itself. that kind of like it's 70s comedy shtick of, we're just going to get a bunch of famous faces to play weird yeah. parts. Like John C. Riley shows up for two seconds in this movie as Fred Gwynn, the guy who played Herman Munster, I guess explaining to a group of kids that he played Herman Munster on TV. <laughs> it's like, this credited, is so weird. Uh, in, in the end credits, he is listed as Frankenstein played by himself. <laughs> So, <laughs> also the waitress um, from uh always sunny is the is the mom uh is cooper hoffman's mom in this movie oh there's so many good people my rudolph finally in a pta movie i don't think she's been in one has she yeah she was in um she was in inherent vice oh was she damn uh well okay she's in a second one yay uh what do you think of cooper hoffman is he gonna make another movie is this like a one and done or is he? Does he have a long? Yeah, he should. Was this like an amazing break, breakout performance? I mean, considering the movie rests on him and Alana Hayes' performances, yes. I mean, it works, so he should get to try again. He's not a lot. I, I, I thought he was excellent. Yeah, and I mean, PTA's instincts for actors are just sort of off the charts. Um, and the fact that he, you know, he was able to recognize. I mean, obviously, being Philip Seymour Hoffman's. Son may put certain thoughts in your mind. You, you you look at them in your life. If you're the if you're the son of a late friend, and he's friends with some PTA's daughters and sons, and you think about, uh, oh, he could potentially be an actor. But to be able to trust in him and to see what it would be like to rest a movie of this size of this sort of import um, on an untested actor's shoulders, and to know that it's going to work out, and to pair him with Alana Haim. Uh, who comes to PTA's life from a totally different avenue. Uh, there's an interesting story there as well. And she is obviously accomplished as a musician and known that first and foremost. And she is absolutely electrifying in this movie. I mean, I thought they were excellent together, but uh, on their own are both spectacular. I don't know how their energies might read in lesser hands in a lesser film that gave them less to do. But here, I think that they are just, you know, staggeringly good. They need to be. They need to be these singular characters who arrive sort of fully formed and unlike any other characters we might know from these movies that have more in common with Paul Thomas Anderson's other characters than they do the characters we might expect to see in yeah. a, um, an uneven, you know, teen comedy, whatever you want to call this. Uh, and they are able to do that right away. And I mean, she, she's so thing. dimensional that she's, she's flexible too, where it's like in the beginning, she is the one in power. She is the older person. She's brushing him off. She is t taking him to her his Lucille Ball uh, theatrical experience or whatever that was um, <laughs> as his as his chaperone. But then later in the movie, he starts looking away and finding like a girl's own age, and then she is lower status, and she's trying to figure well, yeah, out. The place. I mean, it's just, I find she... that swing kind of amazing. I I completely agree with you, but I also think that she 
it's such an interesting scene when she decides to show up for their first sort of quote unquote date um, because she is Mm. surrendering so much power in that moment. Um, And she is confessing, you know, without words, how much she needs this. Because we know, I mean, she's not particularly intrigued by him, by their meet cute. I mean, there's nothing about him. They have a fun sort of repartee, but like there isn't anything that plants a seed that she's like, oh, this could be the... This could be someone I'm going to be friends with and have this weird romantic energy with for, for the rest of my life. It's just, um, it, it's just, I think, desperation for her. That, like, she needs someone to need her, uh, to, to anchor her, to give her something to orbit around. and uh, Get her out um, of the it's, senior yeah. photo right. business. Being, I mean, already being harassed by, I mean, one of the, the first of the, of oh the many God, yeah. sort of capital B bad men who give her a hard time over the course of the movie. Um, little butt slap, and there's really. definitely an appeal that this 15 year old dweeb is is not going to. I mean, he can, you know, he he can mistreat her potentially in other ways, but he he is going to be more respectful and and if anything, you sort of put her on a pedestal, um, which has its own drawbacks. But mm. it's anyway, an interesting movie. That's a good movie. It's a complicated <laughs> movie. Why, like people, we got to look beyond the surface. I there's, absolutely there, there's loved a lot it. Uh, under the surface here. Great. One of my favorite movies of the year, and uh, we'll be talking about it again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, probably next week. Anyway, in theaters now. Go check it out. The final movie, I believe, in HBO Max's Great Warner Brothers experiment of releasing movies in theaters and on HBO Max at the exact same time was the fourth Matrix movie. Surprise! You thought there was only going to be three. Well, Lana Wachowski is back with a screenplay written by herself and David Mitchell. They've gotten the old team back together with some exceptions. But don't worry, Neo's here. Trinity's here. Morpheus is kind of here. Tiffany. Tiffany's here. (laughs) Get it right. Uh, And we're we're back in the Matrix along with uh, the Neo who's now living as uh, Mr. Anderson once again. Katie, have you seen this movie? All right. Well, let me try to set up this movie on its own stakes. So this version of Neo that Keanu Reeves is playing is a video game designer working on a video game called Binary as a follow-up to a sequel of three video games called The Matrix, his Matrix trilogy of video games that he made for a company called Warner Brothers. And he learns that Warner Brothers is going to make a new Matrix with or without him. So his boss, uh, who is played by Jonathan Groff, uh, is like, hey, time to make another Matrix. And uh, this version of Thomas Anderson is not into it because he is having trouble uh, with his own reality. And sometimes he can't remember if uh, The Matrix was a game he made or memories that he had that he turned into a game uh, that everybody played. And uh, the movie is off once he is found once again by some... Uh, let's call them real world people who have traveled into the matrix to find him and release him because yes, he is the one 
uh, and uh, humanity needs help uh, once again. Uh, but this time, instead of uh, Neo coming out and learning Kung Fu and learning about what the Matrix is, uh, he pretty quickly regains uh, his memories, but needs to go back in for Trinity, who is still alive and in the possession of the machines in the real world and still being fooled by the Matrix uh, in the movie. Uh, that's the plot of the movie. The movie is very much a movie that feels like it's resetting the continuity. Patches, what did you think about Matrix Matrix Resurrections? I mean, I got to see this on an IMAX screen and I lost my goddamn mind. Ooh. I, uh, I love this movie and I feel like, I don't know, I've been watching people go back and forth. There's a lot of people who hate this movie. There's a lot of people who love this movie. Um, I hope people on this podcast know that I'm a defender of everything from the Matrix sequels to Jupiter Ascending. Um, I'm probably in the bag for the Wachowski stuff. I never watched Sense8, and I have a feeling that this has a lot in common with that because the writers, the one writer is the same, and it, and the the cinematography is very similar, this kind of bright, joyous alternative to dystopia. Um, and I was excited by that, and I, I was shocked at how well Matrix Resurrections works as... Uh, both satire and reflection and and such angry Gen X energy, um, and then somehow gear shifts into a Matrix heist movie, which is also really fun. I've seen this movie get knocked a bit for not having lots of good action. I guess it doesn't, but it's thrilling to me. I mean, the, the, the shots, there's a lot of cool shots, like when they're jumping off buildings and they really did it, you could tell, and when they're driving around motorcycles, dropping, and there's um, bot bombs, people falling out of the sky like they're in The Happening, M. Night Shyamalan's movie. I mean, it's totally absurd and kooky, and oh, I loved every minute to, of it. Oh, uh, the other happening? What, uh, is there another happening? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I wanted to be specific. Uh, just the happening, I'm just saying The Happening needs no What M. Night Shyamalan yeah. did. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I just, I just threw on a mask for this segment because there is COVID in my house, and uh, it is walking wow. around. And it's walking around. <laughs> it's in your house. Uh-uh. Once you get COVID, you're it's just a program. A it's coming for you. <laughs> um, the interesting thing I think about the action in this movie, which I agree is uh, very different from the original Matrix trilogy, is I think it's really interestingly placed in the narrative to uh, refocus on what we think is like important. So, like the gunfighting in this movie kind of sucks, and I kind of think it's half intentional because I don't think the Wachowskis or anybody involved with this Matrix movie are interested in big gunfights anymore. Uh, the combat isn't wire-foo Hong Kong wire work anymore, and for the one fight where they should be doing that, they have a, the returning character, the Merovingian, monologuing about how we used to do it with more style back in our day, and these kids, they have no style. Uh, cutting away from the wire-foo fighting, because this one is much more interested in, as Patches was saying, fil- uh, filming like spectacle frames uh, with natural lighting and with doing like um, more close quarters hand to hand combat, which isn't to say that there wasn't close quarters hand to hand combat in the first movies, but like the subway station was as like right. condensed as it would get. Here we're in like rooms and world it's, building. Uh, I much mean, smaller. This is this is an advanced reality where the humans in the real world have figured out how to use nanobots to give bodies to the the programs. Oh, that it still has all the crazy stuff. They have Sebebe or whatever the name of that manatee, yeah. or not manatee, uh, Manta Ray-esque like robot. God, um, God, I love the fucking manatee. Manatee, Manta Ray. Please. I, I, I mean, it would be even cooler if they had yeah, a floating big manatee. robot manatee. Sequel. 
But I mean, this is a movie. This is a movie. Just to take a step back. That, as they explain in no uncertain terms, in the first wild act of this film, uh, exists because Warner Brothers was threatening to continue the Matrix series with or without Lana Wachowski, uh, and Lana Wachowski decided that with was the lesser of two evils. Even though she really didn't seem to have too much interest in doing it, she had she suffered some losses in her personal life that fed into the resurrection of it all. Um, but in the plot of this movie, but, uh, this is a film that is really openly grappling with what it can be. What, what can you do in the parameters of the sort of popular art that's sort of trapped in the amber of what has come before? And, but is there room to make a personal film in this, in, in this infrastructure and in, of the size, uh, with this technology? Is there a way to expand the boundaries beyond the binary of, I mean, there's so many different binaries are at work here, but certainly the binary of uh, independent and art films versus product. Like, can you split that difference? Can you navigate between the two and create a synthesis of something new um, that, that fits both both and neither mold? And for me, even if the movie isn't as viscerally exciting as the first Matrix, I mean, it's far and away more viscerally exciting than the next two, as far as I'm concerned. And Matrix Revolutions, um, I have not been able to sit through all the way since the day it opened in theaters, but I was just watching 20 minutes of it on TV before we started recording tonight, and woof. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, for me, it's a resounding success. I mean, I just think this is a really beautiful movie, um, anchoring it to the sense of loss and love and and what you know trinity and neo or tiffany and uh uh thomas are able to do for one another in a way not entirely dissimilar from what we were talking about in licorice pizza but uh in a more explicitly romantic sense um all that stuff just played like gangbusters for me even if the action is yeah. wanting but i also think that like i'm not saying i'm I, you know a lot of detractors of this movie will say that people who love it are explaining away its flaws and i don't want to explain away its perceived flaws um i don't want to say that it's you come into it arguing broadly it's bad or boring for a reason uh, i think it's neither of those things but um i do think that if the action were somehow as groundbreaking or intense um or iconic as as it was in the first trilogy one it would have been i mean the movie is acknowledging that's not really possible um too, it, it would. I feel like it would have worked against the movie in some way. Um, could the action have been more satisfying and still not triggered those alarms? Maybe. Uh, but I think that if you have a new kind of bullet time that is not just you know fuzzed up bullet time, but like that really feels like this gargantuan leap forward in what's possible in, in blockbuster animation. I mean, like it, it would it would distract from some of the questions the movie's asking itself and us in extent by extension. Um, and so it's a really delicate line to walk, and I think Lana Wachowski does it beautifully. And uh, yeah, it's I, just I, really, I really it's it's really great to see an IP that everybody would agree is an IP uh, make a movie that actually feels like it needs to be made. You know, yeah. like I, I, I like I like I love my Marvel movies, I love my superhero movies, but a lot of the times the things that I really like about or the ones that are most successful for me are the ones that are like fun and slight because they aren't weighed down with the infinity saga which i lived through once yeah. and then the the matrix could have been that it could have picked up after everybody who played both the video games 
and it might still for like they don't close that door but this movie is so uninterested in delivering on expectations uh and uh really really finds a way to either make it something new or to tell you you shouldn't be focusing it was on really a wild wild to see this just days after seeing spider-man i was thinking the really, exact same thing yes it really feels like a commentary on uh, like that's the expectation for what a movie like this is going to deliver and this is really sort of uh subverting that and um i mean i likened it in my review in a way that sort of inevitably took some heat which is saying that like that spider-man was sort of the poison in this the antidote but it's also contending with a phenomenon that i've noticed and sort of grappled with since uh the last jedi which is another movie I love. Maybe the last blockbuster of this size that I love in this way. I mean, Mission Impossible 7 I think, comes between the two. Um, or 6. Well, no, 7? I think we're on 7. This year. We're yeah. getting 7 this no, year. No, seven, 7's last. about to yeah, come yeah, out. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, but I think Mission Impossible 6 was the only real blockbuster between The Last Jedi and this that I think I, I hold at the same level. But, you know, all of the fallout aside, all of the blockbusters that seem to resonate, at least for me these days, end up being about themselves. Um, and they're able to iterate on their core stories in ways that I find uh, productive and, and um, you know, allow these, these stories to mature. It's something that I think The Last Jedi did. It's something that I think the No Way Home spectacularly fails at doing. When you say about themselves, are you talking um, about acting as commentary on their own yes, cultural yeah, yeah, yeah. place? Because uh, I, I, I mean, I think that Not just movie, their own yeah. cultural place, which this movie obviously does, yeah. but um, just, just, you know, reflecting back on the stories that they tell and it's something that you know spider-man is able to do in an emotionally successful way just with the andrew garfield bits but for the most part feels like a lot of fan service wankery to me and just like you know clapping for things you've already seen before because the hint of recognition like give you that that yeah, eye yeah. and this is saying this movie is saying recognition isn't enough like it's not an, it's like what there the, what can you do besides just show people what they've already seen before what giving them what you they think they've been conditioned to want and um, that is a challenge that this movie accepts wholeheartedly, and I think is all the more right. Like if, if Trinity has to come back, if Neo has to come back, why would they come back, and what would it mean, and why would they fight this hard? And why, you know, it's asking. You know, I don't think it's so meta even why this story continues. It's just the thought is so deep on how these characters would return to the world and be emotionally connected and advance uh, the emotional thinking beyond. Hey, we're stuck in the Matrix. Like this is a philosophical argument, and we're going to make the basis of uh, an action movie out of it. This is something. There is emotional logic here. There's there's depth. I think David Mitchell is a huge asset to thinking novelistically about this char- these characters in the past of this franchise, and and not just being self reflective in a meta way, but just to to truly advance the characters forward. There's not just one one. There has to be two. There has to be love. I found. The optimism of this movie really powerful in a way, you know, it's it, it's really, a, the beginning of it is so harsh and so angry, and it should be, because we are fucked up. It's not simple, like, there are, we're all on our phone gags, never that simple with this movie, but I'm so glad that it, a- it continues past that, and it keeps going, and it keeps trying to figure out what humanism is, and, and making it into an action movie. Yeah, there's a part where Jessica Henwick's new character is talking to Keanu Reeves and she's saying, you know, this is what the Matrix does. It takes the thing that you love and it makes it part of the structure that it's using to control you. And I'm like, thank you, summing up capitalism movie. And then I was on this movie's side (laughs) the rest of the way through. Except, Katie, this movie has a mid-credits scene where 
it's it's picked up off of a it's picked up off of a sequence where uh, there's a whole bunch of game producers trying to figure out what this ne- next matrix is going to be, and it provides the answer I think in this mid credits scene, which is Catrix. That's the only thing that would have been more popular than all Cat Matrix. Uh, they're right. Yeah, they're right. They are right. Let's be honest. I mean, are are we living in the in a matrix created by the cats? Is I guess the question. Is that what an all cat ma- matrix means, or is it a it's matrix unclear. in which cat? Um, it is unclear. I yeah, think just the word the, "cat" the is uh, profitable Marketable, enough yeah. itself. Yeah, that's the question posed for Matrix Five. Catrix, where the X is a dollar <laughs> Perfect. sign. Perfect. Uh, yeah, Matrix Resurrections. You could stream it right now. <laughs> There's no ghost in this machine I make my own mistakes We seem like skeletons with bonehead beliefs well, every time I ill-advisedly open Twitter over the holiday break, which I didn't have to and shouldn't have, uh, it seemed to be not people having bad takes about Don't Look Up, but people yelling about other people having bad mm. takes about Don't Look Up. And the best I can figure is that some people, and I don't know who, maybe one of those is a film screenwriter, maybe it's other people, were accusing critics who didn't like this movie of not caring about climate change. <laughs> and then I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law, who, like, one of the first things he asked me when I saw him over the holidays was, have you seen Don't Look Up? I've seen it twice. I love it. And I was like, yeah, I haven't seen it, but you know, I've heard some people say it's like kind of an obvious metaphor for climate change. And he was like, oh, I didn't really get that it was a metaphor for climate change. So then I finally saw Don't Look Up. And I do think it's a very big, big and obvious metaphor for climate change. But it's a movie that people want to talk about regardless of whether or not they find that clunkingly, obviously, clunkingly obvious or not the there at all. movie is doing its uh, job, on this like movie? not everyone is on Twitter all the time seeing how people scream and shout about climate change. So we needed a big star-studded yeah. Adam McKay Netflix movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence for, to be like, wait, what? But unless people don't get it at uh, all, of course. <laughs> I would argue that the at least a portion of the discourse I saw was not so much about the ins and outs of climate change and people spurring each other to take action um, or, or reckon with the idea that individually we are more or less powerless to stop this and it has to be fixed on an institutional level, which is another thing the movie is correctly arguing for. Uh, it was mostly people just calling each other fucking morons, which is that's oh right, what right, right, yeah. Um, which, that's, that's that happened in our review too, segment, I think, didn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what the movie is, which is why I liked it so much because this is another mm. movie that is angry at its audience. Wait. Hey, Dave, yeah. fuck you. Oh, okay, Sorry, yeah, thank on. you. <laughs> there it is, Twitter. I mean, <laughs> that's that's how we started filming every day on on David's uh, short film. He would tell me to go fuck myself, and I'd be like, "All right." We all have our sadistic rituals. We need to be artistically. Uh, but like, I, I this movie gets so far up its own ass. I think it kind of works. Um, like, really, uh, not going subtle at all with the climate change metaphor, and then sort of bleeding into a COVID uh, metaphor. Uh, put me in a place where I liked individual jokes but mostly was mad at how this wasn't uh like as deep of a satire as it needed to be because it didn't have to go that far like uh meryl streep is not reaching here to just play like a uh what if hillary she's clinton Trump not were even one getting person. off the fucking couch i mean no. she is she yeah. is phoning it in uh you know to, the to be clear she's this movie is the about most a... snl worthy donald trump uh riff that you could possibly do the movie's about a giant comet we haven't really established yeah, so for people who have a comet it. yeah it's a big comet it's, it's, it's gonna hit the earth the scientists are like we're gonna die comet from deep impact uh just you know, seen from a different that. angle 
Yeah, they named yeah. it after Elijah. It's Wood, called the Elijah Wood Comet, and it's coming for us all. Uh, yeah. uh, and then they spend two know. almost uh, two and a half hours just yelling, trying to get anyone's attention to do something. Yeah, but nobody will because they want to, you know, like the rest of us, look at Kate Blanchett and hear funny jokes and see Timothy Chalamet okay, be relatively positive. We do, we do that, that in the movie. Me, that part made me that real me mad. That, Katie, made Katie, me real mad. Run with this. <laughs> no, just the idea that like, well, Ariana Grande is here and she's talking about her boyfriend. Everyone wants to pay more attention to Ariana Grande and the boyfriend when the argument of the movie is also that these things can only be solved by massive governmental intervention. The way that it wants yes. to both blame people for being shallow so and not paying attention and blame structural things, they, they don't add up to each other at all. Like what's frustrating is the people in power, but it's way it's it gets more joke mileage out of making fun of everyday people who are just kind of helpless. And it's also, like you know, else. there are. There, you can play with the rules and the logic of, of our lives in satire and farce. I would argue this is both a satire and a farce in a way that it never really feels like it's on sturdy ground with either one of the two. And I think it speaks to the unevenness that Katie was describing. But there are, it is set in a recognizable world. I mean, they are not only riffing on the Trumpness of it all, but they're playing into COVID. I mean, this is a movie that was shot in the middle of COVID. Um, and, you know, by the time that... There's some amazing scenes of like, crowds of 10 people or like people in a room where they're not sitting on like right. near each other the, the covid and by is the end of the film there are rallies where there are a group of people who are uh, essentially the right-wing contingent of the movie is telling people once the comet is actually visible in our <laughs> atmosphere not to look up and then there are rallies where ariana grande and kikati's character perform where they're singing songs very unfunny songs one of which has been submitted for an oscar and i had to listen to it was times do you think it was supposed to be funny christmas uh, there was more than one song. No, one song. I mean, there are multiple. I, I, I listen. Okay. I don't know what I said. He listened to it multiple, multiple songs. I listened to it multiple <laughs> times. Um, which was too many. Yes, it's a joke song. The first half of it is meant to sound you know, something not dissimilar from the kind of duet that Ariana Grande might release. And the second half, she sort of demystifies and decodes the language they've been talking about. And she's like, "What he's really trying to say is, there's a fucking comic coming to kill us all." And the joke has about as much force as any other joke in this movie. But um, they are playing on the reality of what we're going through here. And yet still, they want us to believe in the first act of the film that if scientists were laughed out of the Oval Office by a president who was more interested in their own reelection chances than they were in saving the human species, that the New York Times would not take their article and put it on the A1 front page biggest news story in the world. They would have to go on, you know, Ryan and Kelly and, uh, you know, and, and even Ryan Seacrest would do a much better job of taking this seriously than Tyler Perry does here. Nice as it is. To see yeah. Tyler unfortunately Perry the movie is sense. cynical instead of barbed. Like I actually think matrix resurrections really punches mm. and, and then gets beyond it and then keeps the conversation going. Whereas this movie it's just kind of like rolling its eyes most in most of that's its what jokes. I didn't like. That's what I didn't like about the discourse and the director's involvement in it is the implication that there is something that the audience can do because there isn't. Right. That's why this movie's cynical. That's how this movie ends. And then to come out and be like, well, yeah, but we like the Green New Deal. I'll be like, no, like, fuck off. You just showed me like two hours, uh, more than two hours of film showing me that even if the Green New Deal's good, like humanity's right. not going to take it. And I yeah, believe I mean, that. Exactly, that feels true to me. That's exactly right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the discourse that has come up around this movie kind of unexpectedly, as far as I can tell, because uh, so much of the conversation has been people browbeating people, a lot of critics, 
uh, for not liking this movie, saying that if you don't like this movie, you must not care about our environment. You have a moral obligation to like a movie this star-studded that's this accessible and available and ubiquitous in the conversation around Christmas um, because of its subject. When I think, you know, the critical community, film critics most of all, have really reckoned the past few years of whether or not a film is as good as its subject matter um, or, you know, what more there is to it. And then, yeah, as you're saying, I mean, the film is saying that we don't, we, they're, they're, we do, we are powerless to uh, do things like this on an individual basis. And um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing seemed off. It also suggested that David Sirota, one of the co-writer with Adam McKay, um, or Adam McKay, maybe the sole writer and David Sirota's right. credit with the story, I'm yes. not sure, yes. um, don't really understand the points of making or so thin-skinned that they, uh, that goes out the window um, but it's really, but I mean, thing. someone on Twitter pointed out correctly, uh, which is a rare thing to be able to say <laughs> that the closing credits of the other guys was a real, uh, signal shift in what was happening in Adam McKay's thinking that he was going from sort of absurdist outsider art in the studio system, things like Step Brothers, a masterpiece, um, and veering into badgering and to, you know, finger wagging. What were the closing credits? It of was the other guys? all these statistics Max, after yeah. a movie as absurd as that is about, um, the uh, I'm trying to remember what the other guys was about. I think it was. Uh, it's not about the no. It was about, no, it was about white collar crime. It was about, about the banks. Crime, right. It was a direct on ramp to the big. It was a direct oh, on ramp to the big short. Oh. Um, and the big short is a movie I hated because it felt like no, two it's, hours it's of that, good. and I was really put off by the reaction to that movie. And I think that you know, similar to the blood that I have on my hands for writing a positive review of Molly's Game, a lot of people have a lot of guilt or should for enabling. Adam McKay to go on and make Vice, one of the worst films in years, and now Don't Look Up, which I think is less toxic, but uh, similarly this is the, I, I was, I was going to say, this, yeah, this is a little watchable. I mean, I actually... Yeah, this is the direction this has, you want... Yeah. This is where the direction you want him to go in. I don't want him to tell me how COVID failed right. by casting, you know, somebody as Trump and then I have to fucking watch that. Like, I don't want... I want him to do more Doctor Strange Love and less Big Short. And mm. that this is at least feigning in that direction. I don't know mm. if he understands it yet. But right, like Ron Perlman, like flying, flinging himself at a comet, um, and Ron Perlman, who has a long history of calling critics. Uh, uh, a, I was about to censor myself. I don't know on this podcast if it's worth doing at this point. But um, what does he call? Anyway, what does he call critics? He, he, he always his go-to is calling critics cunts, and he just oh, did that boy, again. Boy. I mean, he's done it personally, not just critics in the abstract. Yeah, he he's like personally called several individual critics cunts, um, and been very happy about sicking his followers. Uh, to dox them. Damn. Um, I speak from personal experience. I I only bear some ill will towards Ron Perlman. No boy, what's like wrong? A, he seems like a, a you know a pugnacious, decent guy who just doesn't really understand how um, violent social media can get and how things you say online sort of you know out of mild frustration and uh, personal animus can can really metastasize into something real. But um. Anyway, the sequence where he is, you know, flinging his body into space to to save us from the comet, like that shit, in a funnier movie. I mean, none of it's funny, which is a really fatal flaw. Like, if it's, if any of this were actually funny, if any of this were half as funny as the recurring bit about someone pretending that it costs money to get food and snacks right, at the White yeah, House, it is funny. Um, then all sins would be forgiven. But Jennifer, it isn't. Jennifer Lawrence are... is the 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 MVP of this movie. She has the best line. But the movie's... No, Leonardo DiCaprio is really? the Leonardo DiCaprio, Melanie really good. He's no, so good in this movie. The characters who are able to have one foot in reality and sort of ground it 
really anyone who participates in that big final dinner scene, uh, yeah. I think is, yeah. is good. Timothy Chalamet is pretty good a, at it. A, a unexpected. Timothy Chalamet reprising his Ladybird character yeah. kind of, yeah. in the parking lot. Um, with a religious bent. Not unexpected because it's a good performance. I like Timothy Chalamet in most things, but unexpected just because it's not the, the sort of tenor you expect from that character. I think Mel. Well, he arrives like yeah. with 20 minutes left to go, and you're like, what the yep. fuck? And What's then he stays happening? for the and rest of the time. Yeah. It's great. I mean, like, I, yeah. there are the performances. I got to look back on DiCaprio. Fine. I, I got to interject here. DiCaprio is unhinged. Uh, in an unfortunate way here. I think he's playing the same kind of like broad screamy wow. notes. He's, he's kind of losing him, himself. Um, now I'm saying this after once upon a time in Hollywood, wow. he's much more reserved and then explodes at certain moments. And like, he's well calibrated in that movie, but I feel like I'm watching Revenant Leo try and do comedy as opposed to Wolf of wall street. Leo. Uh, I would say that's much more, that that's much more of a description of what he's doing in this, where he's playing this guy who was like kind of a nerd and kind of in over his head and he's trying to hold it together. He has this like one big, network style speech that gets undercut by the movie wisely i think um but he has a full arc he's the only character this entire what? movie who has an arc even jennifer lawrence then concentrate on him like, good at her character is just kind of at sea make a movie that thing. where know, he can get he seduced really by well. you know he is the science-minded person he is the factor of a person and he becomes seduced by the pageantry of trying to get this mission to happen i don't know it's just half-baked all of yeah. it is half-baked all he, he can do is scream and, and all he can do is make wacky faces no, he I just. Think the, I think you're just thinking of his one big network mm, speech, and he I think does a lot more. If the movie were more nihilistic, it would have been able to get away with a lot more. I think that if it really leaned into the idea that we're sort of doomed, and how do we let ourselves get to this point, and we're in this tailspin, and we've crossed the Rubicon, and there's no going back, and it really wallowed in the despair of that, and made the kind of thing that people could could God. watch 500 years from now and be like, wow, <laughs> that they no were one really would ever doomed. watch. I mean, like that, but that would have been because Adam McKay seems at least half interested in doing that. And it's sort of mitigated by this badgering energy throughout the movie and tone. And then you see that followed through on social media of just like everyone should be paying attention to this, even if there's no I mean, there's a lot of there there in real life. But the, the movie is not, I think, bolstering any. I mean, I, I my, there's a friend. There's not any my, more there there than there was before this movie came out. But there's, movie... a, there's a friend of mine. There's a friend of mine who used to work in uh, film. And may work in film again, for all I know, but she used to do grassroots fundraising for documentaries. And she tweeted over the holidays that uh, she got out of that game because she became so discouraged that these documentaries for which she was doing grassroots funding could actually affect social change and or institutional change or any of the change in progressive causes that they were, you know, uh, about. And she was applying that same sentiment to something like Don't Look Up. And that resonated with me because it was like, you know, we talk a lot about the way that the movies that we see are able to resonate with us and, and um, change our thinking or spur us to think in one way or another. And you see a movie like this that it, it seems packaged to, you know, rub people's faces in this thing that we have all trained ourselves to ignore and need to see for the comet that is streaming towards us that it is. Uh, and yet, what good is it doing other than making people mad at each other? But I, no, you're get out, get out of your. Mm. I'm going to sound a little like Adam McKay here. Uh, get out of your bubble because you're not talking about like Katie's brother when you're talking about the people who really see this movie Katie? and how they're impacted by it. And I will say the last like 20 minutes of this movie, kind of a gut punch. I think it's pretty effective and pretty dark and pretty moving. The, the ending is far and away the best part. But if Katie's brother didn't even clock that it was a metaphor for climate change, I'm not sure what good it's doing for him to. Well, he thought it was a Look, metaphor for, like, a lot partisanship and dysfunction. Like, he wasn't, like, no, this is my brother-in-law oh, we're talking about. Let's not defame anybody. Um, 
Yeah, I was going to I watched this movie right before I went to bed and like went to bed and like couldn't really sleep for the unsettling aspects of the ending. Um, So I would absolutely give it the credit. For I that. really like the ending of this movie. And I think what I told the rep or whatever after I got out of the theater was like, this is a really ballsy Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence movie to just release on Netflix during Christmas. Because if you're going to catch, you know, anybody that actually needs this rubbed in their face, that's the net you got to cast. I don't know if the film is the best vehicle for that, but I like his. Uh, we really had it good, didn't we? At the end of this movie, we we're really going to be saying everything. that about like 2018, like someday in the future. I That's just I think like, we already are. Mm. Yeah, um, but we're we're yeah, I, we're on that road already. So this movie, if anything, I, I I'm with you, David. I kind of wanted it to be harder. I wanted it to go harder. Yeah, I mean, what what it is about and how it is about it are just so diametric different for me in in this case uh i think you think like of um what's his face incredibly famous actor whose name i can remember who plays the steve jobs elon musk mark like, rylance like, thank you mark rylance yeah. um, it's not I steve think jobs my favorite performance in the whatever the, my least favorite performance in the entire movie just playing this like really it, it, it almost felt like i don't know i don't want to go into these waters it, it it like was vaguely offensive to me in ways that i don't want to put my finger on but um it it, not not out of you know the sanctity of Elon Musk or anything like that, but it was just uh, <laughs> it, but like it was so broad and unfunny, and either there is this really poison tip truth, the idea of the incompetence of the billionaire class at certain points and the self interest of it, and um, how there is no master plan, and um, at a certain point it's going to run out, as we see in the film's multiple uh, credit scenes, but the. Yeah, I mean, like that whole character just felt so flat and ineffective, and you're wasting this incredible actor who I think is totally, totally uh, going down the wrong path here. And it's it's just impossible for me to like a movie that is sort of hitting false note after false note after false note, and in these like really simple like lobs of pitches that are thrown down the middle, and they just keep bunting and. The false note thing was what was really driving me crazy. Because, like, I think by the time you get to that scene in the White House where they meet with Meryl Streep, like, the the comedic guardrails of the movie have not been established well enough. Like, my film professor used to always talk about the margin of safety in a comedy. And, like, we specifically talked about it around Dr. Strangelove, where, like, you understand the rules of the movies that you know what's funny and what's not. And it's not clear in that scene. And that scene goes absolutely nowhere. And it's a problem for the rest of the movie, where, like, none of these jokes or characters or anything are landing because it can't settle down enough to 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 give you the tone of the world that you're in yeah i just i just adam mckay used to know so much about being funny and i um i really don't like to get too personal and even when charting the trajectory of filmmakers and ascribing uh intention or motivation or anything that's happening behind the scenes but um there is a a very clear self-important streak that's been running through his work and I can understand that impulse and having this platform and wanting to do something productive with it and wanting to call attention to mm-hmm. certain ills and I want to applaud him for that in theory but uh I think that he's a better artist than he is a um I don't know someone who's on their soapbox yeah Polemicist. and but the scene where Leo can't log off, where he very, can't get off Twitter, that was, that was amazing. <laughs> that's, some, that's someone who knows when he's like hunched over I, at yeah. his computer. I'm like, oh boy, he got us. <laughs> I just yeah. think that if Adam McKay put the the comedy first and the you know selling the, these easy jokes and and making his point second, he would fare Guys, a lot. This is why downsizing better. was actually a great movie, and no one saw it. Can we oh, go boy. talk about downsizing? Oh, no. Okay. 
<laughs> Don't look up on Netflix. Uh, we didn't even talk about Patches COVID. No, we didn't even talk about Patches br- COVID. You can bring it up in the outro, I guess. That does it for this week's episode. I feel like you should all know that now that you listen to it. This is the equivalent of Michael Jordan's uh-huh. flu game, where uh, Michael Jordan played an entire basketball game with the flu because Matt Patches, the sharpest, smartest oh, yeah. person, I do. has COVID yeah, right I do. now. Yeah. Would you say this performance is this your best on, podcast ever, despite your COVID? His performance on this episode was similar to Michael Jordan scoring like 49 points or whatever. Yeah, no, that's yeah, what I was, I was nailing say. it. Yeah, basket no, I think after his basket. points about Matrix. Um, I, yeah. I would like to point out that I've had COVID for each of the past. 300 episodes oh, um, and yet <laughs> and yet have done my best uh, to be coherent and I've succeeded once or twice I, sw- I want to say something about Omicron though um, because ha- David you have had you've had your brush with Omicron as well you have not had COVID but you have been around I, I may I may have I have certainly had a very very Omicron themed Christmas and New Year's <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good and I'm on like day two of having COVID where I just spent like two weeks of the holiday being really meticulous about testing and then I had to get on an airplane to go to the west coast um, and then I got there, and I tested, and then I tested five days later. All negative. Flew home. Had a great time. Actually, it was an awful flight. Flying is just truly still horrible. Um, sorry, people <laughs> just like a disaster. An hour on at like going to the gate. What is this process anyway? We're moving to airplane airplane combination. I didn't get thousand flights are canceled. They still can't find an open gate for you. It's amazing. Apparently, they're rebuilding. Maybe because the all the planes airport. are sitting. There. Maybe that's why. I mean, all the planes are just sitting there clogging the gate. But here's the thing about Omicron. I got home and I tested. <coughs> and I still was negative, and then met with like my bubble couple for New Year's Eve, and that's how I got it. I did like. The whole gauntlet. It's like Frodo. Name names. It's like Frodo going to drop the ring at Mount Doom, coming back to Hobbiton, and then getting like kicked in the balls or something. It's, it's, a, so it's the scourge of the Shire. It's yeah, the it, is. Of the it is. Shire. I'm going through my own personal scourge of the Shire. This sucks. Uh, but you're I, but okay. I, yeah, that's the thing. I'm like, I'm back. I'm boosted. I'm quarantining myself, but uh, you know, from my family, which is really sad. But. Uh, but this I feel is the problem. good. You have you have a three year old daughter who yes. is obviously not vaccinated, and and I don't uh, want it. I don't want her to get sick. Yeah. And hopefully we don't listen to this in a week and we're just like, God, Pat, this is my final words. Like, what, what he yeah. brings you. I don't think I'm going to go. I feel like you get pretty sick and then get better over time. I don't think you slow build with Omicron. That is my understanding. So I'm, I'm letting case, everyone know yeah, that if I, Omicron is as inevitable in your future as I, as I think it will be. I mean, it's just so the numbers in New York and Jersey are just like out of control. But the hospitalizations are not. Or, well... The hospitalizations for COVID are really not, and that's the worry here, that everyone will have to go to the hospital if more and more and more and more people get it. But I guess the good news is, if you're vaccinated, if you're boosted, uh, I feel good. Sore throat, a little stuffy, but um, just get some get some tests and, and truck it out. And if get not, if having a two-year-old toddler at home, I would be uh, huffing my wife's uh, oxygen. Or the CO2 that she expelled Jeez. just to get it out of the way. Wow. Um, yeah, it probably build up your be, system, right? I mean, it can't, I mean I we don't certainly know wouldn't be. Uh, okay, hang on. No, no, no. <laughs> no you're right. I'm dialing that back. Who knows? I don't know anything. Please don't <laughs> no, believe me. We, so we, we were certainly I would not believe. Be quarantining um, maybe farcically in our tiny Brooklyn apartment where it seems futile from to each other. To, uh, record you from each other, me and our toddler and. Elisa stuck in our bedroom with the air mattress. Uh, and so far, as far as we can tell, 
the COVID has been contained in the bedroom, oh, but uh, that that may change in a hurry. We'll see. Uh, this is all to say it can be a little scary right now, and everyone listening, be be safe and be well. We're starting a new year, a new COVID year. Um, it'll probably play it safe out. You know, well, who knows? But just be safe and don't don't be scared. I'd actually love suggestions for how we should uh, mark our pandemic 100 episode, uh, which for me will be the true COVID anniversary, not the two year anniversary, but whenever that. I think it's like six oh, weeks God. now. So uh, any listener suggestions for how we should commemorate other how about than a huge all getting COVID, which party. I still don't, don't intend to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, everyone come over. Breathe I mean, you'll, I'll but be, Patches, when you recover the most from this, are you, are you going to feel yeah, invincible? I'm gonna be yeah, you gotta, yeah, you got to get a few weeks of just invincibility. I feel like you've your body has earned that. You're owed at I, least. I get the um, Mario star. I'm just going to be running around right. top speed. <laughs> just listen very carefully to the music, because as soon as that shit runs out, you are <laughs> yeah. super vulnerable, even if you are jumping. I'm in the lava. I'm in the lava. Oh, shit. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how I usually wrap this show up. Uh, tell the people who you are. I, I am guess Matt Patches, mind. deputy editor over at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, uh, and David has COVID. Um, uh, fightingintheworld.com. <laughs> you can listen to old episodes. If you didn't listen to our quarter quell last week, uh, if you hadn't kept caught up on Limitless and Super 8 and all these very important <laughs> urgent movies that we had to watch last, for last month, uh, go back to fightingintheworm.com and, and listen to that now. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. I think I was even less coherent in this episode than I usually am because, as discussed, uh, I've spent the last 10 days potty training and quarantining, quarantining with my... Oh, congrats. Can you poop in the potty yet, David? Or uh, I cannot <laughs> poop in the potty, and unfortunately, neither yet can Asa. But he can pee. And I got multiple kudos on my daycare app today for him successfully peeing in the potty, and then also several accidents in the afternoon. But what can you do? Uh, Kids. Yeah, we really, we really went to our own Mount Doom over the past 10 days, <laughs> and uh, I have slept for no more than four hours. And maybe one day we'll talk about all the TV that I watched at 2 in the morning um, over the past we can change uh but it won't be on this episode or next but uh you can still get in touch with us on itunes fighting in the war room leave us a review we'll read it live on the show it'll be great fun great fun for everybody it'll be a great fun jesus christ put me down <laughs> yeah uh my name is dave gonzalez you can follow me on twitter at da7e to self-correct it's the scouring of the shire the scourge of the shire would be a person and i don't think we know who that is at least yet um, uh, you could reach us at uh, through email now. That's the new thing that I get to plug at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, there you could send us your international reviews if you've been reviewing us, say, six years ago and we didn't read it. Please send it our way. We'd love to uh, read it on the show. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at uh, Vanity Fair and on the Little Goldman podcast, where this week we're talking about Don't Look Up as well. Uh, and maybe it's Oscar chances, which we didn't get into at all on this episode because I have to keep my brands <laughs> separate. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R. We're truly, I would love your ideas for our Pandemic 100 all episode. Or you could just answer this week's <laughs> lightning round question. In honor was, of 2022, what's your most anticipated release of the upcoming year? Thanks for listening. And we'll be back talking to you next week.
I'm done.